Ohio Governor Mike DeWine is in the house. Welcome to a bonus episode of This Week in the CLE, the podcast discussion of the news from the Cleveland.com and Plain Dealer News Team. I'm the editor, Chris Quinn, here with two of our regulars on the podcast, politics editor Jane Cahoon and content director Laura Johnston. And for the next half hour, the esteemed governor himself. Welcome to the podcast and thank you for joining us, Governor. Well, good to be with you. Thank you very much. We, we asked the governor to chat with us for this episode about all things coronavirus, and we're hoping to set the tone with a little history. We're six months into the pandemic, which is the biggest story any of us will ever cover in our careers. But when the year dawned, what has happened since would have been unimaginable. So, Governor, we're hoping you can take us back in time to exactly when you came to understand the gravity of this crisis. And how did that happen? Can you narrate your journey from when you first heard of the virus to when you knew it was something that required you to take the bold action you took to keep Ohioans safe? Well, I think like most Americans, you know, we first saw this on TV coming out of China. And, uh, you know, I suppose it was just one more news story at some, you know, at some point. Uh, but when I really started dealing with it uh, and had to really understand it was when we had what's called the Arnold Classic in Columbus. And, um, you know, our health director, Dr. Acton, uh, the Columbus health, health director, uh, Dr. Roberts, uh, you know, they both came to us, came to the mayor and came to me and said, you know, we think there's a real problem with this. And so we started looking at it and uh, it's a big event. Uh, they have about 15,000 participants and about 60,000 uh, people who come in from up to 80 countries for a four-day period of time. And it's, it's just, it's a trade show as well as uh, sporting events. Uh, and we just looked at that and, <clears throat> you know, nobody had closed anything across the country or certainly not anything that big. We had, I don't think we had any cases at that point. Um, and we made the decision to, to close it. Uh, we allowed participants to continue. Uh, <clears throat> but we said, no, no, no spectators. Uh, right after that, we were faced with uh, the NCAA coming. Uh, Cleveland was going to be the first round. Um, but also right before that, in the middle of the week, was Dayton, which was the play-in series uh, of games. And so we had to look at well, what are we going to do about Dayton? What are we going to do about Cleveland? And our decision was let them play, but do it without any fans. Now, as it turns out, after we made that decision, uh, NCAA, uh, you know, decided not to play, but, um, it was at that period, that kind of week in there when we've really first had to uh, grapple with the decisions. And, you know, I got on the phone with doctors and got on the phone w with real medical experts about this. And so my learning began, I guess, in, in, in real earnest then I also, at some point, Early on, uh, got the the book about the 1918 uh, pandemic and, and started starting reading that and try to get an understanding of what, you know, what everybody went through in Ohio and across the country uh, when that when that hit. So in the matter of 36, 48, 72 hours, you went from somebody who was seeing what was going on on the other side of the planet to somebody that realized this was likely coming here and it required the kind of action that people took back in 1918. Yeah, I mean, my inst you know, I, I rely to, to a great extent on 
past mistakes, frankly. <laughs> we all learn from past mistakes. And I look back at my career over 40 years and, you know, where I've made a mistake or made mistakes has been where I didn't get enough facts, didn't consult enough experts, didn't talk to the right people. Um, that's the biggest reason. And, and the second, you know, it's many times, not many, but a few times when I did not really trust my instinct where everybody was going one way and I thought, hey, they're wrong. Uh, and then, you know, I think I should go this way, but because everybody was going the other way, I thought, well, I, I you know, they must know more than I know. So uh, my two lessons in life, life lessons of 40 years of making decisions in government is one, get all the facts. And when you think you have all the facts, keep going back and keep asking more questions and keep digging. And two, uh, once you do that, trust trust your gut and trust your instinct. And so what I came away with the initial thrust of, of talking with people and listening to people was that you, in, a, in, in something like this, you have to act early. Uh, and if you think you're acting early, you're probably not acting early enough. And, and so... I've approached this all the way through, uh, you know, is, look, am I asking myself the question, am I, are we doing enough and are we acting enough and are we doing it quickly enough? Okay. Jane, you have a question. Yeah. I, I, Governor, I'd, I'd like you to talk a little bit more about that decision-making process. You know, we, we often make jokes on this podcast. Chris is always asking me to get inside your head and tell me what, what is Governor DeWine thinking? So, so I'm trying to do my duty here. Um, it, but I am curious about your thought process. You, you had to make this series of decisions. You, you closed the schools on March 12th and the bars and restaurants on March 15th. And then the, the big stay at home order came on, on the 22nd. And it seemed like all along you were laying the groundwork for all these. And then you you know, you made the announcement calmly. And it, was that a series of deliberate decisions that, that you kind of mapped out ahead of time? Or how much were you doing it all in like real time? Oh, I think it's both. I mean, uh, you know, you're always trying to look at the next play. You're, you're trying to look down the road. Uh, but, but sometimes, you know, just the facts just emerge and you just say, okay, you know, we've put enough, uh, weights on the scales. It's now, it, now, now it's moved over and now it's time to, 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 to do that. Um, uh, you know, and so, you know, each decision was different, I guess, but I, but I, uh, my overarching belief was from history and from what experts told me is the one thing in a pandemic you don't want to be as late to the game. Um, and you're going to have to make decisions as the leader that most people don't understand because frankly, they don't haven't spent the time and talked to the people. I mean, that's what leadership is about. I don't expect the average person to, you know, to have taken the time that we took to look at this. And so, I mean, my instinct all along was you got to do it. You got to do it quickly. And are we doing it quickly? And and after a while, you, you know, then that question and then the question that I continue to ask myself now is, are we doing enough? You know, are we doing the right things? And what else can we do? Uh, and this thing has evolved. You know, the decisions as I look back now, the decision to close the Arnold Classic was a gut-wrenching decision that was very difficult for me to make. Uh, but 
uh, looking back, it looks like a no-brainer. I mean, it looks like any idiot would have made that that, that decision. Um, and you know, once you start doing things like that, then you know, the second and third time you do it, it's frankly, it's it's easier than the first time you do it. We're now in a very different situation. Uh, we're now in a different a situation where, you know, we know that we can't. Uh, it's not healthy for people in, in their mental health or their uh, in any other way to you know keep this the economy and the society closed. And and you know we reached the decision a few months ago that look we are going to have to try to do two things at once, um, and we're going to try to bring people back. And we're going to try to keep people safe. And we knew that we couldn't do either one of them perfectly, but but we, you know, felt that we needed to do it. So when we started back, uh, you know, we put a group together, and, and you know, how do you how do you come back the best for this business or that or that business? And then we started we started opening things up. Uh, but this is in many respects a more difficult time than early on. Uh, it's one thing when you're closing things down and you can make a decisive action and you can see the result. Uh, what we're in now is a, a lot of a lot of more fine tuning. Um, and, 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 you know, the real challenge is to keep people with with you uh, and to keep people, you know, you, if you lose the people of a state uh, or a country, you, you can't lead. You can't move forward. And well, so. Yeah, go ahead. Sure. Actually, Laura has a question that's got, that, that yeah, sure. explores exactly that issue. Laura, go ahead. Sure. I do. I, I feel like you have been leading this, this state one step at a time. I remember you and Dr. Amy Acton in March pleading with us that suburban store parking lots should not look like a regular Saturday morning. You wanted us all to understand that regular life was going to be turned inside out, that we needed to stay home, keep our distance, and eventually wear masks, but these really dramatic changes were rolled out gradually, briefing by briefing. So was it important to slowly get people comfortable with the steps of restrictions? And how did you and health experts discuss these enormous changes in getting us all to go along with them? Well, I, I think, you know, one of the things that I continue to try to do is to signal signal things before I do it. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, start people getting used to that this is kind of in the direction that we're we're going. I mean, an ex, an example that's been criticized, <clears throat> and I replay in my mind many many times, is the decision about the mask. Uh, we came out with the business orders, and the way we drafted the document was no mask, no service in retail. Um, we, in fact, we even announced that, uh, but it it became just clear to me and and is the more i thought about this i i thought this isn't going to work we're going to lose people they are not going to do this uh and we're going to have a, a complete rebellion and when we have a rebellion on this issue we're going to have a rebellion on other things and so we pulled that as you remember we pulled that back within 24 hours and just, just turned it around uh continued to say it's important to wear a mask but we're not going to compel you to wear a mask Fast forward to the time when it got to the point where I thought the situation was bad enough and that people could be persuaded uh, to do it by an order and that we wouldn't lose people. We'd lose some people, but we wouldn't lose a majority of people. And so, you know, everybody, if you, if you, anybody studies what we did, those would be two different questions. 
Did he, you know, should have he, should DeWine have kept the mask order on early? I, I, I don't know. I mean, no one will ever know, but you can, you can argue it either way. I, I, I thought at the time that people were not ready. Then we put the mask order on. And if you remember, all hell broke loose. Maybe you don't know, but I got, you know, <laughs> you know legislature went crazy. Everybody went crazy. And, and but, but here's what happened. Uh, we, we put that mask order on first in our cities. And at this time, our cities were the hottest with the virus. Uh, it's very much changed now. The, the rural is the most hottest now. But then those, so we put the mask order on in those cities. And in fact, a couple of the cities that actually put their own city order on. And then we, we surrounded that with, a, with a, in fact, a county order. And what we saw when we did these counties uh, that were red hot, and there were, I don't know, six, eight of them, I can't remember how many, we almost saw an instant change in mass compliance. It went from, say, 55% to 80%, maybe 50% to 80%. And it happened all, within a, a two-week you know, two period of time. And then we started seeing the numbers change. And, and so I will always be convinced that the wearing of masks in the urban areas, in the urban counties, you know, took them down, started taking them down. And it took a while to get them down. But we started seeing their numbers go down, their new cases go down. Um, and so, you know, that that worked exceedingly well, even though, you know, if you look by my mail or my emails or what legislators were saying to me, they, you know, hey, you can't do that. You can't compel people to do it now what's happened is that the rural areas were still having trouble. You know, you know, I send district reps of mine out to counties and I just say, walk in stores, go look. Uh, and so I get reports all the time. And so what we're seeing in, in rural areas is the, the mass compliance is up, uh, but it's not where, you know, it's not what we would like it to be, but it is up in, in rural, in rural areas as, as well. The other part of what we've we've tried to do, and you didn't ask me about this, but and no one's really asked me about it, but we started, we felt we needed to ch kind of change the culture uh, and what was acceptable and what was not acceptable. And, and so we started running ads. Uh, we had Jobs Ohio uh, help us with paying for an ad. We had Workers, Workers Compensation Bureau uh, pay for some ads. And some of the ads that you have seen on TV with people wearing masks, uh, doctors wearing masks, is based on you know research that we did, uh, data, data that we put together based on research of Ohioans' views, and tried to you know kind of have that as the under undercurrent to the background music to what was going on because uh, it, you know it was clear that Mike DeWine standing up there talking about it every day or every t twice a week is not going to you know, change people's ideas. And so we have put a real effort into these, these, these ads that have appeared on TV. And, and, you know, we've had people who are Ohioans talking to Ohioans, not, not the governor, but, you know, uh, other Ohioans. Uh, and we had one ad I particularly like that starts off with a, uh, you, you know, with the guy that he's actually at a, a pig farm. You can't really tell it's a pig farm, but it's easily his pig farm. And he's talking about wearing a mask. And then you see the next shot of him and he's, he's a medical doctor. Uh, and he's, you know, same guy. He just happens to be both. And uh, he talks about, you know, wearing the mask. And so those things also, I think, have been important uh, as we've continued this process of bringing people along and letting them understand. 
And, and look, the, the, the sometimes our, our federal partners, who, who I think many times do a very good job, uh, sometimes they didn't get it right. I mean, you, you take the mask issue. Uh, the, the original, you know, guidance out of the federal government, CDC, was not for wearing masks. And uh, uh, I mean, the fascinating thing is that the more data that comes in, the more studies that are done, the more people look at this, the more convinced people are that the evidence clearly shows that masks may be the, the most important thing. Right. You know, more than distancing. I mean, you had you had Dr. Redfield last night say this mask, he holds this mask up and he says this mask may be more important than than, you know, when I get uh, uh, when I'm inoculated next year. So I mean, that was pretty profound, pretty, you know, tough statement. I, I do want to point out at Cleveland.com, we were on the record in February <laughs> saying masks would matter. We never accepted that. And I think you give yourself too little credit for persuading Ohioans. And Laura has a question about that coming. But first, look, uh, you know, at the very front end, you decided to close schools, close bars, close restaurants, close offices. You moved quickly, as you said, at the top of the, the podcast. We didn't have the masks. We didn't have the knowledge we needed to prevent the spread of the virus. You needed to get people to stay in place while they figured it out. Months later, we do have that knowledge. We know that masks will keep us safe and there's a lot of things we can do. And you're more comfortable reopening these things as we've we've gone into it. And I'm particularly interested in schools. Take us into the war room. What was the conversation that gave you comfort if it was so important to close schools at the beginning of this? And you were applauded across the country for taking that bold step. You were about the first. What is it that made you feel okay? about letting them go back while we're still in the middle of the pandemic? Uh, well, first of all, I don't feel okay about it. Uh, I worry about it every day. Uh, a lot of choices that uh, I make uh, and that we've had to make are choices between two, two alternatives that um, one's worse than the other, uh, but they're not either one particularly great. Um, you know, I talk to enough uh, people uh, parents uh, talk to professionals, doctors who basically, uh, you know, said, look, it, it's um, a number of different things. Or the reports of child abuse went dramatically down. Did child abuse go dramatically down? No. <laughs> I mean, we almost bet on that. Uh, but kids were no longer being able to be seen outside their house. Uh, in the spring. So child abuse and the ability to have eyes on kids is, is important. Uh, mental health challenges for kids. Um, this is, you know, experts describe this. Uh, we have kids in our, in our cities. I had one uh, school superintendent tell me we lost a number of kids. So what do you mean lost? We just lost them. We went remote and we never heard from them. So, you know, that all of those things were certainly not an ideal thing. And, and, you know, when you go back to the original decision, at that point, there was not complete knowledge, and there's, there's not complete knowledge now, but there was not enough knowledge about the virus. And I think people thought, uh, you know, that the spread, uh, the, the natural protocol from the professionals was when you have a pandemic, you shut the schools. Why? Well, because kids 
you get first grade class of 25 kids, well, you're mixing 25 kids in there. And, you know, if one of them has the virus, then maybe all of them get it and then they take it back to their families. So, you know, historically, schools have been looked at as a big spreader. So you were really closing the schools. Yeah, to protect kids. But the real reason you're closing schools is because that would be a huge, huge, huge spread. Uh, you know, that's still a fear. But I think we know now, uh, we're pretty sure now that um, kids won't get very, generally won't get sick. There's certainly exceptions. Uh, but the kids, you know, don't, in fact, what we didn't realize early on is how many, how many adults and kids will have no symptoms, but still, still have it. So, so you weigh all that. And, and but, but frankly, um, you, you know, we have a long tradition in this state of local control of our schools. Uh, and so I made a decision and it was not an easy decision to basically allow the local school district and the, of course the parents, because parent, parents will decide, uh, but allow that school district to make a decision how to go back. Um, and, you know, part of that decision was based on the fact that um, I didn't have, I didn't have, I didn't think I knew the right answer. I didn't think medical science showed us the right answer. That one thing was absolutely clear. If it's clear, you can make a decision. Well, that was not clear. And so we let the schools uh, do that. I think the schools uh, have appreciated that. The families have appreciated that. But I think they've also stepped up and taken real responsibility instead of telling them everything to do we told them here are the guidelines here's the basic principles but you go figure it out and to, and as far as i can tell so far uh the kids the schools are doing a very good job uh and frankly the spread and I, i've said this about adult adults i've said this about college students and i'm saying this about k through 12. the danger to everybody is not when you're in the workplace. I mean, there's certainly some danger if you're in a meatpacking plant, you know, your danger rate goes up. And, there, there, you know, if you're out in a, in a grocery store and you're stocking shelves and people aren't wearing masks, yeah, danger. But by and large, the businesses have done everything they can do to keep people safe. Uh, they certainly try to. Schools have done everything they can. Colleges have done everything they can. Where you're seeing the spread, and I talked about this on the press conference today. Time after time, we look at colleges, the spread is, is not on campus. The spread is kids off campus, living off campus, living in their own houses. Uh, look at that horrific uh, uh, post that you saw from Miami University, these kids living in a house off campus. <laughs> you know, right. they're all, they're, it's just horrible. But the same thing is true, I believe, with schools. I mean, I've said this to communities. And I've said this to leaders and communities. If you want your kids to be in school, you need to you need to get the rate down in your in your community, because that school will absolutely have to reflect what's going on in the in the community. So, the the schools are not. Are, is there a danger of school? Sure, there's a danger any place when when you've got you've got the COVID out there. But the real danger is in people just being people and just not being careful and not wearing masks and and not in not keeping a social distance and letting their guard down. We see it time and time again. Where do we see the spread? Weddings, funerals, uh, getting together with family, getting together with friends, and people let their guard down because it's a social event. It's an event where you normally don't have your guard up and they don't wear a mask or they don't social distance. Those, that's where we're really seeing, seeing the, the spread.
Not that you okay. can't get it in school, but anyway, so you make the decision about schools. It's a tough decision. And look, schools are all over the place. I mean, you've got a lot of urban areas where these kids are not in school. And I think we all, we all worry about them, uh, you know, cause they're not, they're not in school. We talked today to a superintendent from Youngstown or the CEO of Youngstown. I think they've done a very, you know, good job. They did everything they can with these kids to, to make sure they're on the internet. They've, They've, they've got the, you know, they've got the, the pad there in front of them. So anyway, they're working at it. Okay. We're, we're eating up the clock. We have a bunch Sorry of questions we're not going to get to, <laughs> but I'm hoping to get to three more. Laura, go ahead and ask about the briefing. So you started in March with those seven day a week briefings when news was just a flurrying. Ohioans loved those 2 p.m. wine with DeWine sessions. <laughs> and, and as uh, things slowed down, you kept them up twice a week, the same dependable time. So what is your philosophy behind them? Were you aiming yeah. to offer a calming countenance to people in a storm or to convey information without having to go through media? And given how popular you, they are, do you expect that you would have briefings all the time, even outside of a crisis? Yeah, I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, the first one occurred actually in Cleveland. Um, and I think we're at Metro Health, maybe. I can't remember exactly where mm -hmm. we were. We That's did right. one. Uh, one thing I've learned uh, over the years is that, um, uh, you know, you, you want to get people the facts. And I think it's particularly important in a time of crisis. And so doing these briefings enabled me to the best of my ability to give people the facts. And we were very open, even when sometimes it turned out that the facts we put out or information that we put out may not have been as complete as, you know, we didn't fully understand it because no one understood it. Mm -hmm. And so I felt giving that information out uh, was was very important. We picked two o'clock. I didn't pick it. Uh, Lisa picked it. Um, you know, my press team picked it uh, basically because that would allow local mayors to be able to watch it, then react to their local media before the five o'clock news. And, and so that was the, that's why we've kept that time. It seemed to be a good time uh, that, you know, they still had time to, to get it on the evening news, whatever we were saying, but also gave the, them, the, the news media the ability to go out to the local and get a local react to what we were saying. And, and so, so that's why we've kept the time. It's a fascinating civics lesson. I would have never thought a governor giving a statewide televised briefing would be this popular. And I hope you do keep it up. Jane, you wanted to ask about the politics. Yeah. You know what, Governor, while you were strategizing with your team on, you know, how can we best protect Ohioans? Did you have any idea how political this whole thing would become? I mean, did you foresee something like the issue of masks you know, becoming a dividing line between political parties and, and or the no. protesters <laughs> banging on the... No, I never uh, would have, in my wildest imagination, thought that the, some of these issues like masks would become, uh, you know, political. Uh, you know, it's like a lot of things. I learned about it and, and kind of understood it. The more I started hearing from people about it, and then we saw it, we saw it evolve. But no, I had no idea that would that would occur. It, it was it, it really did become a surprise. All right. Look, we'd, we'd like to wrap with something that that kind of gets at the heart of your you've seen the polls. You're immensely popular as a governor. The people in the state care about you. Most people are grateful you do the briefings. So I wanted to to kind of take you 
to the day that you tested positive. You know, three of the four of us on this podcast are of an age that we're in a greater danger if we get it. Um, and you were great. You, you immediately got on camera and talked about it. But during the day when you tested positive, how much were you thinking about that? I mean, I think we all would wonder about our mortality if we get this virus. Did you have some difficult moments during that day? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, it was, first of all, it was a shock. Um, you know, Fran, I've been very careful, but you know, we do see some people, we see people in, in our family, uh, so, but we've been very careful. And so, yeah, it was a big shock that I tested positive. Um, you know, I always want to find the facts. And so my first call was to, you know, a doctor at Ohio state and I, who I know very well. And, uh, and I said, Hey, <laughs> How about let's do another test? So, <laughs> so I, he said, well, these things aren't usually wrong. I said, well, okay, but you know, what do you think? And he said, well, let's, okay, we do a test. So we do, you know, I saw, I, you know, I called Fran and told her and, um, and I said, why don't you and I, if, if I'm positive, you're positive. Uh, and, uh, so let's, let's meet in Columbus. Let's get a test. And so we did, we got a test and, uh, uh, went, went back home, waited and, uh, you know, Eight, eight o'clock that night or something like that, we, we found out. But yeah, you, look, you go through everything. I'm 73. Uh, I, I have very controlled asthma, but I do have asthma. I've had it since, since I was in, probably in, in high school. Um, so, you know, you kind of look at the numbers and you kind of look at, uh, you know, I've learned a lot about this. I'm not a scientist, but I've learned a lot. So yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a scary, uh, it was a scary day. Um, you know, we, we had, uh, we, we had another, you know, scary, uh, event. One time we had a, a granddaughter who, who lives down in Asheville and she stayed with us for a, a week. And, uh, Fran took her halfway down and met our son, uh, coming up from Asheville after the week was over. Uh, Fran got home, uh, our son got home and then he found out that, uh, his next door neighbor had tested positive and, oh. uh, that our little granddaughter had played with the next door neighbor's child next door neighbor. And, and so, you know, we thought, oh my. Uh, and so we thought, oh, you know, the odds are we probably have this. She probably has it. And uh, anyway, so he came up and, you know, he, he got tested and he was, ne and she, you know, she was ne negative. So you, you have these scary things, but you know, everybody's going to go through these uh, if they've not gone through it. But I just close with one, uh, one, one thing you talked about the popularity and I will just, I will tell you uh, what my wife reminds me virtually every day. Uh, and we, she and I have been doing this together for over 40 years. And, uh, you know, if your popularity is high, it, it will come down. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, you don't get too excited about it and, uh, you know, it, it is bound to come down and, uh, you know, if, and when you're down and people are beating you up, well, there's another day. So you just, I mean, the one thing you have to do throughout this crisis is you have to keep an even keel. You cannot be up. You cannot be too far down. You just have to just you know, you have to plow through it. And in some respects, it has literally been Groundhog Day. I mean, we went we day after day. I mean, you know, every day is, is, is basically, basically the same. Um, you know, I start generally, I, I start, I, I get, I get up early. I start at six o'clock. I'm trying to be working by 615. Uh, I'm an early person. I don't do late. <laughs> uh, and, you know, we had normally have a, a you know, like, Seven fifteen call with somebody, either college presidents or somebody. Eight o'clock, we have our normal situation briefing. We go all day, and uh, you know, every day is kind of the same because we're we're trying to figure out what else we can do. And so, kind of one day one runs runs into the other. But you've got to be able to keep an even keel. You've got to stay healthy, uh, and and you've got to just 
you've got to stay focused. Well, I think most people in Ohio will join us in saying we're really glad you were okay. I'd like to say that I'm glad it's it's the woman who always puts things in perspective. And <laughs> Bravo, first well, right. but I wanted to say I'm glad it's not just us that it feels like Groundhog Day. Well, yeah, no, it's, it's it's all of us. Look, Fran, I've been married 53 years, and uh, you know, but I I have uh, a number of women around me, some of whom you've met, who uh, who keep me focused. They, 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 you know, hey. I don't think that's right. You know, it's just, but you got to have people who, you know, you know well enough and have been around you long enough who will tell you uh, your idea is not a good idea. So anyway, I, I've got. Well, thank I've you, Governor, for thank giving you us much. the time today. Really appreciate it. Uh, we'll be publishing this on Sunday. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Jane. Thanks to everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE.